Uh, I was just talking with someone about uh, this next week, seeing some of the temperatures, the supposed temperatures that may be coming. I think most everyone's kind of feeling, maybe not everybody, but most everyone is kind of feeling, I'm done with this, I'm ready for the warm weather to come, let's do this kind of thing. So, uh, we're going to continue through the Gospel of John. So if you have uh, physical Bibles, you want to turn to John 18 or... Uh, you've got a digital Bible, you want to swipe there, encourage you guys to do that uh, right now. Um, I'm not going to give much of an introduction this morning because uh, the first verse will kind of get us into some of uh, providing a little bit of a lay of the land as to where we, where we are thus far and uh, where we're going this morning as well. So uh, let me read the first verse that we're going to look at this morning. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So, Jesus has been arrested. Um, He went in front of the supposed, or the former, high priest, Annas, then went to Caiaphas, who is the actual high priest, and now he is headed to the governor's headquarters, it says. So the governor's headquarters, this would be where the Roman official resides or rules from. So the Roman official that we're going to find out in just a moment is Pilate. So Pilate is the governor of Judea, which is a region in Israel. It's now the Roman Empire, but it's a region there, and Jerusalem is kind of the hub That's why everyone comes to Jerusalem uh, for annual feasts, for celebration, to worship, and so forth. So Pilate, as the governor of Judea, has a number of roles that he carries out. So he's viewed as kind of the supreme judge over the land. So if there's big cases like this one right now, Jesus, he will be the one that is going to oversee this. He's also the one who carries out law and order. So If there's issues, he's going to be the one that's going to bring the hammer down on people. He is the police as well. He's also the IRS. He's in charge of collecting taxes from people. And so he's got a broad array of functions, but also just a vast amount of power that he is exercising. Now, typically, he would not be in Jerusalem. But he is there right now, and the reason that he is there is because Roman officials would go to wherever the annual feasts are being celebrated. So they would oftentimes go to Jerusalem when there is a big feast or celebration going on. And the reason for that is they want to be able to put their thumb down on anything that would break out. They want to make sure that they're able to keep order. Now at this time, Israel maintained some semblance of national distinctiveness. But we have to understand that their national distinctiveness happens under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, under the rule and the reign of Rome itself. And this is why we find, uh, it talks about they in verse 28, being the Jewish authorities, uh, religious leaders of the Jews, bringing Jesus to Pilate for trial. Now, I should mention here that Pilate is no friend of Jews. I think it's in uh, the book of Luke where it talks about him spilling the blood of Jews. As we read this, it's going to look like, oh, it seems like they're kind of on the same page a little bit. They're maybe working together in some way, but we should know that Pilate is no friend of the Jews. He is a bitter enemy. So it says in verse 28 that it's early morning. In the first century, this time, work would start very early. Still very early in the morning, uh, with what's happening with Jesus. But many people would start their work days uh, very early in the morning. Oftentimes the work day would be done by noon uh, for many people at this time. But Jesus himself, he's been up for much of, if not all of the night, talking with his disciples, praying to his father, and then being arrested. This is the day that Jesus is going to die. Now all of this is happening... Uh, within the framework of the Passover feast. This is why Pilate's in Jerusalem, because the Jews are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. This is the annual celebration of God 
coming to rescue, to deliver his people from the brutal oppression of Egyptian overlords. But what we find here now is the rescued, Israel, are killing the rescuer. So the rescuer that they had called out to many years prior, they are now killing the one who has been sent to rescue them. And the irony is thick here. It says, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So for Jewish people to come into contact with Gentiles and their homes or their practices, it would cause what, what they would refer to as ceremonial uncleanness. It would make them unclean, and so then they'd have to go through this process of purifying themselves, ritual purification, and there's all these kinds of laws and rules that they would have to follow to do this. Now, these Jewish religious leaders are concerned, what we find in verse 28, they are concerned with following all of the rules. They're not going to enter Pilate's residence because they don't want to be contaminated. They want to be able to celebrate the Passover feast. And so we find them being concerned with following rules to the extent that they would require Pilate to come out to them, to come out of his residence and to come before them. So we see this external show of piety by the Jewish religious leaders. And for many, this might be impressive to them, like, oh, look at how pious they are. They're even going to follow that rule. So this might impress many people, but the irony here is that it's going, despite their attempt to follow the rules, even in their following of rules, they're going to kill God himself. So, this is the setting of where we are this morning and, and where we're going as well. And this setting leads us into our first preaching point, which is the idea of pursuing righteousness through evil means is evil. But let me read uh, the next four verses and then we'll jump into this. So verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them, being the religious leaders and the soldiers who had brought Jesus, and he said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So our first preaching point here that's flowing out of these verses is the idea that pursuing righteousness through evil means is evil. Pursuing righteousness through evil means is evil. Now when we look at these four verses, verses 29 to 32, there's a good amount of legal language that's used here. Accusation, judge, law, and so forth. So Jesus' trial is beginning with Pilate's question to these accusers. What accusation do you bring against this man? And I think it's worth noting here that this is not, most likely not, Pilate's first interaction with Jesus and with this case. It's very likely that he's been apprised of what's going on, that these people are, going, are, are coming to him. And, and one reason we can assume this is because he would have had to have okayed the Roman soldiers being sent to go and arrest Jesus. And so he's had some interaction with this. And, and I think what we find in the Jews as they bring Jesus before Pilate is that they're assuming that Pilate is going to rubber stamp Jesus' crucifixion, that, that they're going to say, this is Jesus, this is the man, we're bringing him before you, now just let us crucify him, or you crucify him. And the Jews state in return to Pilate's question, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. I think we can almost read into this here, we can hear this implied self-righteousness. Clearly, this man is evil. We would not bother you, Pilate, if there was not good reason for it. This man needs to be dealt with in a harsh way. And then Pilate is almost chiding in his return. He says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He's saying, if this man has just broken some rules, if you don't like what he's doing, then, then you've got a law. 
Judge him by that. You guys can handle this on your own. And he's almost, he's just pressing them uh, with this. He's forcing them to state their real intentions. He, he wants to know that, that his time's not being wasted. Because here, here's where we see some of the fact that there's a history between Pilate and the Jews. He has disdain for them. And, and I think that's why we see some of this chiding in response. So the Jews are forced to state their real intentions. And they say, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So here we find religious men, religious leaders of this nation, pursuing righteousness through evil means. They are seeking to protect themselves. They are seeking to protect the people that are around them. They are also seeking protect, to protect their religion. We could say their nation as well. And they're protecting all of these things by seeking to put Jesus to death. And so we find them seeking to do righteousness through evil means because they're seeking to follow laws, but in that, they're killing God himself. So I was thinking through this, this or as, uh, I got a real-life example of this idea, pursuing righteousness through evil means is evil this week. We were driving somewhere uh, on Friday, and uh, one of the children in our van uh, had a cookie, and they were wanting to share that cookie with others. And so they shared it with one of their siblings, and then that sibling decided, I don't really want the cookie, and then that sibling decided to share it with another sibling. And so uh, as parents, you're like, man, like, kind of knocking it out of the park here. Like, look at all this unfolding before our eyes. This is great. And then, to take things even further, the next child, or, or the initial child that shared the, the cookie, they're like, oh, I know Daddy likes cookies. Daddy, I want to share my cookie with you. And, and all of our high hopes of parenting came crushing down as this child sought to steal the cookie from the, the child that now had it and crushed it in that child's hand and it was no longer any good. The, the child was seeking to pursue a form of righteousness, to do good in some way, but they were doing it through evil means, trying to steal now the cookie from another sibling, and it did not go well. I mean, probably a little, it was the beginning of World War III if we didn't step in. I mean, that's how it feels when you're driving, but obviously it's not even close. So, we can apply this reality, the, this preaching point to ourselves. Like these Jewish leaders, we also tend to do good or to be righteous by following rules and laws. This is what Jesus, partially what's getting Jesus in trouble, right? He's not following the rules and the laws that the religious leaders think he should be following. And so this is why they want to kill him. But this is the way of the Old Testament. This is how people would be deemed righteous. God gave laws to his people, and he said, if you follow my laws, you will be blessed. If you disobey my laws, you will be cursed. Now for us, Jesus comes to do a whole different thing. And so for us, to live in the pre-Jesus time is completely dangerous and will damn ourselves. But in Romans 3, we get a, a little bit of a glimpse of what Jesus has done. So Romans 3, New Testament, this is post-Jesus, post-death and resurrection, okay? And he says in Romans, or Paul writes in Romans 3, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So prior to Jesus, and we could even say in this time where we're at in the Gospel of John, because he has not died and he has not raised from the dead, prior to him, righteousness was sought by following God's laws. And then as Jesus came, we read in the beginning of Matthew that he has come to do a new thing, that he's coming to fulfill all those laws. And in fulfilling them, he's setting them aside. But now, and we could say not just now, but throughout history, what humanity has done is we have proven that we are incapable of keeping God's laws. There had to be another solution. 
because his people repeatedly transgressed against him. They repeatedly broke God's laws. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we all do the same thing. We are continuously breaking God's laws, seeking after things other than him. And so when we look at this, if we're honest with, our, with ourselves, we can say like any actions that we might commit in the vein of, of like social justice. So any attempts we might uh, make to carry out a form of social justice, to serve someone in some way, e even if we would like, uh, maybe we're in the, the drive-through of a restaurant, and like we're going to pay for that person's meal behind us, okay, or in, yeah, behind us, and, and so you're going to do that, right? You're going to pay for somebody's meal, or, or maybe it's confronting a bully at school or in the workplace. You, you're going to do that, or maybe it's even if we're going to go church world, memorize the Bible, Okay, or, or sections of the Bible. Like, all of these things are good things, but none of these things make us good. They don't make us righteous at all. Why is that? The reason is because these external actions flow from our hearts. And in our hearts, we can have evil intentions and evil motivations. Now, there's this common assumption within society and culture at large today, the idea that we are good. Like, people are good, and we, we desire to do good to other people. And, and when bad things are done, that that's the aberration. Like, someone will do something heinous, and people will be like, I wonder where that came from. Like, what, what's wrong with this person that, that they would do that? But the reality is we all do that. We all think those things. And the Bible's response to this idea that we can do external actions and in some way deem ourselves good or create righteousness, one place we can go to is Jeremiah 17, 9. And it says here, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So when the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above, above all things, we can't just gloss over that. We can't just say, oh, that's kind of a nice little statement or, or whatever. And yeah, maybe mine as well, but just kind of then move on. The reality is, is my heart and your heart is deceitful above anything else. There's nothing else that we can look at and say is more deceitful than my heart. And the reason you and I can say that about our hearts is because we know our hearts better than we know anybody else's hearts. Or we know our hearts better than we know anything else else. And so we can't just gloss over it. It is saying in Jeremiah 17, 9 that we might have external actions that other people could look at and say, that's good. That person is good. Or that is righteous. But inside of ourselves, we could be seething with hatred. Or we could just be apathetic. It could just be complacency like uh, going through the motions. I don't really care. I'm just going to do it. So, what this is saying is that, to use one example, we don't get to just say, I gave money to my church. We can't just say, because I gave money to my church, I've done a good thing. I've created righteousness in some way. Now, because of what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, and, and other places as well, because of what Jesus is doing, we must check our heart for evil intent. What's the intention behind giving that money? What's the motivation? Why do I give my money? Or maybe for some of us, it's why don't I give my money to church? Do I do it to appease God in some way? Do I do it because maybe I've got a friend who maybe sees the books? Do I do it because I'm supposed to? That's what good Christians do, so that's why I am going to do it. The reality is that we see throughout the Bible is that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. It's one word, but this one word has such massive implications. We are not saved by good works, but for good works. Salvation comes prior to the good works. The good works are done to display what has already happened. Doing righteous acts is not enough. We must always be asking if we are pursuing and doing 
righteousness, whatever that might look like for us with an evil heart or if we have evil intent in our hearts. Now, maybe some of you are asking this question, can a non-Christian do good? So what are we really talking about here? So I would differentiate between goodness and righteousness, okay? So anybody can do something that's good, but righteousness, we're talking about salvific uh, uh, details, okay? So Jesus talks about how rain falls on the good and the evil, okay? So that, that's what we would call common grace. There is grace that is extended to all of humanity, but then there's saving grace. That would be righteousness. So evil doesn't have to be explicit or intentional. For a non-Christian, they might just be misled in some way, okay? Um, but the evil does, doesn't have to be, uh, someone doesn't have to be saying, I am going to do this evil act. We can just have evil intentions that for many of us are oftentimes unconscious for us. Can a, can a non-Christian do good? Yes, they can do good, but they can't do any good that will save themselves. There's no good that they, or you and I, for those of us who are Christians, can do that is of saving good. Okay, so pursuing righteousness through evil means is evil. Let's go to our next section of verses here. Verse 33. Let's pick it up. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? All right, so second uh, preaching point here. What we fight for and bear witness to is what we deem as right or that which where we will go to in some way make us righteous. So this section that we're looking at, verses 33 to the beginning of 38, is recording the exchange between Pilate and Jesus. So Pilate leaves the mob, he comes out, he hears the accusation, then he leaves the mob and he goes back into his headquarters to have this chat with Jesus. And he asks him in verse 33, he says, are you the king of the Jews? So I think this also is suggesting a prior conversation between Pilate and the Jews. Because notice how the Jews have framed the accusation against Jesus. Pilate's asking a specific question. Are you the king of the Jews? Why, why is he asking him that question? It's because the Jews have previously interacted with Pilate, and they have tried to paint a picture of Jesus. Pilate does not care about the theological concerns of the Jewish people. He doesn't care that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. He has no regard for that. But what Pilate does care about is if there is another king, another man who wants to stomp on his territory, who wants to come and push him back, whether it's politically or militarily. So what the Jewish people have done, the Jewish leaders have done, is they've framed this whole conversation in a way that it's politically motivated and it's intended to offend Pilate in the greatest way. They've called him the king of the Jews. And so they're seeking to raise the ire of Pilate. Now Jesus' response suggests he's measuring Pilate. Almost like he's asking, are you curious about me? Or are you repeating what the Jews have said? In Pilate's answer, he seems a little indignant. He says, am I a Jew? Your nation, their leaders delivered you over. What have you 
done to be put in this spot. This made me think of Pilate's response here, maybe how he's viewing Jesus of Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years prior to this, um, but it talks about the Messiah, and it talks about the Messiah in this way. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. I imagine that Jesus is in front of Pilate. There's nothing about him that's impressive. And Pilate has to be wondering, what in the world is going on? Why is this dude here? Right? Totally unimpressed, probably confused at some level. But then he asks him the question, what have you done? What has this guy done to create such a ruckus? And, and probably looking at Jesus and interacting with him now, it probably is just adding to the disdain that Pilate has for the Jewish people. Like, who is this guy? And what is he doing? And, and probably his ire, disdain for the Jews just increases as Jesus says this. He doesn't give a straight response to Pilate, a yes or no, but he does speak of his kingdom. And he says this in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus is speaking of a massive kingdom. Yet this kingdom has no political or military intimidation towards Rome. So Pilate's probably looking at Jesus be like, oh, you're talking about a kingdom that worries me. But you're talking about a kingdom that's not of this world. Okay, I think, I think we're okay with this. And in verse 37, uh, I d I'll be honest, I don't know exactly how to read verse 37. I don't know if, if like Pilate's exasperated. So you are a king, if he's saying that when he says, so you are a king. Or if, he, if, if there's actually uncertainty and he's actually asking so you are a king? Kind of, like, we don't get, like, how that's actually framed, but he says to Jesus, so you are a king. And we find soon enough that Pilate is unconcerned with Jesus, that he finds no guilt, he's going to say, in Jesus, which we're going to cover in just a moment. But for right now, Jesus says, he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Now, when Jesus is saying this, he's actually implicating Peter, right? Because if you remember what Peter did, he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, whose name was Malchus. So they come to arrest Jesus, and Peter is going to cut off Malchus's ear. And in that, he's doing what Jesus is saying his followers are not doing. But Jesus also, he just kind of shuts down Peter in that moment. He says, that's not what we're about. He's got to drink the cup that his father has for him. Now, notice also here that Jesus isn't just chomping at the bit to tell Pilate who he is. He, he's not just ready to tell Pilate, this is who I am, this is the authority that I possess. You need to respect me, almost to put Pilate under his thumb and to claim some important position. And it's not that Jesus is unwilling, but it's not as though he's just chomping at the bit. He say, he, he's wanting to say, this is my position and you need to respect me. He's not unwilling because he says in verse 37, I am a king and for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. But what we find here. And I think how this really preaches to us is the things that we will fight for. The things that we will fight for. And the things that we will bear witness to. Those are the things where we think, conscious or unconscious, where we can find good or right, ultimately righteousness. And so we'll pursue whatever those things are. And, and when we are focused on ourselves, when we're focused on our agenda, on our position, our desires, when we're focused on our kingdom, we have lost sight of Jesus' kingdom. What seems good and right to us 
That is what we will fight for. That is what we will tell others about. We'll bear witness to those things. We will make time for those things. We'll prioritize those things in our calendar and in our lives. And so for us, some of the things that we really need to wrestle with is what are we fighting for? What do we bear witness about? Do you spend more time fighting with your spouse or against your sin? Do you fight harder for hobbies or for Jesus' kingdom? What do you fight for? More time at work? Do you fight for the good of your church? Do you fight for Jesus' name or for your name? Do you fight for more money? I was wrestling as I was like, this stuff preaches to me as well, okay? It's not like I'm just preaching to you guys. I, I have this stuff preached to me throughout the week. And one of the ways this was preaching to me is something that I find a lot of joy in is teaching kids about the game of basketball. I really enjoy basketball. I don't, I don't really enjoy watching basketball like the NBA or the NCAA. I'll, I'll do it in the next couple of weeks when this thing called March Madness starts. But, but I don't. I don't really spend time doing that, but I really enjoy teaching kids about basketball. I love being able to coach my kids' teams and see where kids are at the beginning of the year and then where they're at at the end of the year. And I'll watch videos. Like, it's like I like coaching. Like, that's fun for me. But the way this was preaching to me this week is you really enjoy coaching. You're passionate about coaching. You teach your kids a lot about basketball. We'll talk about basketball. We've got like three basketball hoops inside of our house. We've got a couple more outside of our house. So there's just basketball everywhere. There's always balls flying around our house. That's why we take almost everything off of our walls because basically everything's been broken because uh, balls are flying all over the house. But I was having to wrestle with, you love teaching kids about basketball. How does, how does that correlate? How does that measure up to how you love teaching your kids about Jesus? What are you fighting for with your kids? What are you bearing witness to with your kids? What do we tell others about through our lives, through our stories, on social media? Is your kingdom, the kingdom that you invest in, that you're pouring your life into, is it of this world? Will it fade? Will it rust? Or is it of eternal value? Whatever you fight for, whatever you tell others about, is how you and I will perceive things to be right. That we will, in some form, find righteousness there. And this is why we want to robustly be a people who is gospel-centered. We want the gospel to shape us, every part of us, so that what comes out of us is the gospel. So that as we tell people our story, whatever part of our story we might tell them, that we'd be able to do it through the lens of the gospel, that it would be tied back to how Jesus has been kind to us, how he has shaped the landscape of our hearts. So what are you bearing witness to? What are you fighting for? And then, in verse 38, we get kind of this hinge. Pilate asks this question, what is truth? And as we read on in verse 38, we find him leaving the presence of Jesus and going back out to the mob. And it's almost this picture that we can see. Pilate asks the question, what is truth? And then he turns his back on Jesus and walks away and goes back out to the mob. And I, I just, this is kind of an apt picture for our culture today. There's so much skepticism regarding truth. We could, we could have spent the whole day on those three words. What is truth? That's another sermon in and of itself, probably a whole series that we could do. But today, in our culture, as Pilate asks this question, what is truth? That question gets asked all the time. What is truth? And the common answer today is that 
Truth can't really be known. Truth is subjective. So you'll hear someone say, we can't really know truth because it's subjective. What is that statement? That's an objective statement. So by stating this supposed truth about, about truth being subjective, it's being stated in a way, in an objective way. And so even that statement itself, it's kind of self-defeating, right? And so the reality is truth is not subjective. There has to be a concreteness to it. Truth is objective. And, and I think what we see in Pilate is he, he kind of feels the frustration. What is truth? Almost a scoffing question. And he feels some of that uncertainty. Now, uh, let's jump to the end of verse 38 and uh, through the end of uh, 40. It reads, After he had said this, being Pilate, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in Jesus, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. I think what we see through the testimony of Pilate here, and we see this throughout the Bible, is the fact that you and I cannot find righteousness anywhere except in Jesus. Our righteousness is found in Jesus and only in Jesus. We see God's goodness and his power, I think, in these verses and in preceding verses as well. So previously, we heard Peter testify against Jesus when he denied Jesus three times. And what testified against Peter? It was a rooster, right? This is what Jesus said would happen. You're going to deny me three times, and then the rooster is going to crow. And when Peter heard the rooster crow, that was a testimony against him. That's when he realized, I have done what Jesus said I would do. I have sinned against him. I have denied him. Now, here we find the Jews testifying against Jesus. The Jews are testifying against Jesus. And who testifies against the Jews? It's Pilate, right? Dirty Rome, their enemies, are testifying against the Jews. When Pilate says, I find no guilt in Jesus. We see God's goodness and his power. How he is over all of this. He is working through even these, these physical realities, testifying, he testifies against the Jews. He testifies of humanity's sinfulness, but even a rooster, even an enemy of Israel is testifying against them as well. So we see God's goodness and his power in this. But in Pilate's statement, I find no guilt in Jesus. There's no coercion going on here. Pilate is stating what he's seen. Remember, he owes nothing to the Jews, okay? They are a bitter enemy of his. He's not being coerced in this in any way. He sees Jesus as guiltless, which he is. We can't find another person or place or thing where righteousness is. It's only found in Jesus. And for us, this is true. We are only righteous through Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross. So the reality of this, when God is going to look at me someday and he's going to judge me, what he sees is not my record. What he's going to see is Jesus' record. Okay, that, that's what's happening here. It's not as though Kevin has this long list of of great things that he has done, all these righteous acts that he has done, and God's going to look at me and judge me on those things. No. He's going to judge me based on Jesus' record. And the idea here is what Jesus has talked about a couple chapters previously. He says, abide in me. 
He's saying, be found in him. That is how his record becomes my record. So, I was having a conversation uh, earlier this week and talking about uh, political views at Center Church uh, and how we are robustly political. So, when I'm using this illustration, I'm, I'm not like hinting at anything subtly, okay? I'm, we are apolitical, robustly apolitical here, okay? But if we're thinking about Jesus here and the fact that his record becomes my record. So I was thinking about President Trump, okay? So, so let's say he goes down as the worst president in the history of the United States. Let's say that at the end of his presidency, his approval rating is a negative percentage, okay? Which can't happen, but let's just say for our purposes that that's how it is. Because that's kind of feel, it's kind of how it feels in many uh, respects right now. So, worst president that this country has ever seen. So let's say two decades after he's no longer in office, historians come back through, and they're making their lists of the best presidents. And for some reason, Donald Trump is at the top. And people are just kind of confounded by it. But he's consistently being found at the top. Now, I think all of us could acknowledge that many people in the United States, to think about that idea, many people would be offended by that reality. How can that be? There's no way that man could be the best president we've ever seen. Just go back 20 years. Revisit all the things that he did or didn't do. What we're talking about with our record being replaced by Jesus is much more offensive. And it's much better. The fact that God would look at us and he would see us as guiltless. He would see us as holy. He would see us as righteous. And that's our only hope. That we would abide in Jesus. That we would be found in him. Now, whether this is Pilate's conscience, or it's him wanting to chide the Jews, or it's because of his wife. Now, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, it records in Matthew that um, Pilate's wife had a dream. And she sends a messenger to Pilate to communicate to him. She says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. So whether it's because of his wife, or it's because of the, he's wanting to chide the Jews, or because of his conscience, Pilate seeks to release Jesus. He finds no guilt in him. He just wants to be done with him. But like Peter, the Jewish nation is going to deny Jesus. And again, we see here thick irony. We see this popping up throughout the Gospel of John. I love how much irony there is throughout this Gospel. We see it again here. The Jews, rather than having Jesus be set free, they choose to have a man who steals rather than a man who gives abundantly to be set free. So they want to set free a man who has stolen from them, who very likely would steal from them again. They want to set him free rather than setting free a man who will give his life, who will give abundantly to them. And, and the reason for this is because they're focused on this world. They're focused on their kingdom in this world. They want to kill Jesus because they are threatened by his position and by his power. They know that if things continue, they're going to lose theirs. And so they want to kill him. But Barabbas is not just a thief. He's also a murderer. And so the Jews, they want to kill the one who ultimately gives life. They, they don't want to, they, they want to set free the one who has already killed, rather than uh, Jesus himself. And, and a man who, since he has killed already, very likely would kill again, right? And so they become like Barabbas themselves, and they move forward with seeking to kill Jesus in their attempts to make themselves righteous by following laws they slay the righteous one and this is our story as well we will seek to make ourselves righteous by following laws we don't make ourselves righteous 
Jesus makes us righteous. When we follow what he has commanded, we display the work that he has already done in us. We are made right in and through Jesus. So a couple points of gospel application for us this morning. Your righteousness, my righteousness is a gift. Our righteousness is a gift. It is accessed by us trusting in Jesus, believing that Jesus is the truth as he stated he is, believing that Jesus is the king, and then taking residence up in his kingdom, believing in the fact that his death is what purchases forgiveness for you. There's nothing that you need to go home and do today to pay penance, to make yourselves right, to to offset bad things that you have done. Your righteousness is found in Jesus. This is not our parents' faith. It is our faith. This is not something that we earn. Righteousness is undeserved. And we have to understand, we cannot add to Jesus' righteousness. You sitting down and reading your Bible will not add to Jesus' righteousness. You can grow up into Jesus' righteousness. You can know it in greater ways. You can display it in greater ways. But we do not add to Jesus' righteousness in any way. And, and for any of you that that's a new concept, if you haven't understood the Bible in this way, this is an invitation to believe in Jesus in this way. The fact that he alone makes you righteous. There's nothing that we do to create righteousness or to add to righteousness. So our righteousness is a gift, an undeserved gift given by Jesus. Now, as we believe in Jesus, as we fix our eyes on him, as we see how amazingly good he is, there is a natural response that flows out of this gift righteousness being given to us. And it's, it's a reality that it's not about us, okay? And it, in order for this righteousness to not be, a, be about, not be about us, what it empowers us to do then is to kill self-righteousness in us. Because we all struggle with self-righteousness. I was thinking about this this week. When you hear self-righteousness, you can also think self-sufficiency as well. I was thinking about this this week. How for many of us, myself included, we oftentimes, uh, we just don't ask for prayer. We don't ask for input from people, for making a decision. We won't ask for someone maybe outside of, maybe we'll talk to our spouse, maybe we'll talk to a roommate or a close friend, but, but we really don't expand the boundaries of that. We don't ask for help in the way that we need to. You and I need more support and wisdom from other people than any of us would like to admit. And, and why is this? Why are we so self-sufficient? I, I think it's because we're self-righteous. Maybe because we fear as well, but we're self-righteous. We think that we understand the situation. That in our own minds, we have this broad understanding of everything that's happening. We understand the situation from a 360-degree perspective. But we don't. We don't. We, we think that we know what we're supposed to do and that we have the capacity to do it. But we don't. Maybe we're self-sufficient because we're fearful. Maybe we're scared of how God might change the plan that we've hatched in our own minds. Maybe for some of us, we, we don't want to ask others because we just don't want to inconvenience others. I think this is probably pretty common. But if I can press against this, that's just false humility. When we don't want to ask people because we don't want to inconvenience others, that's just false humility. We need to ask the help and input and prayer of others. Maybe some of us don't want to do it because we don't want to be exposed as weak or sinful. But we all are all, all of us are that. As Michael was talking about this morning, uh, inviting us to share the blemishes that we have. That's the reality 
for all of us. If I'm honest, like, I don't look at any of you and think like, man, you've got it all together. Like, I, I view all of you as broken people. And for all of us, it's kind of like, what's around the corner? What's the brokenness that's just waiting around the corner for us? And you should view me the same way. Like, I don't stand up here, though. It looks like I'm, I'm on, like, a podium or something. I, I am not standing on a podium. I, I, am, I am not perfect in any way. I'm as broken as the rest of us. And yet, we still are self-sufficient people. And what Jesus wants us to do as we believe the gospel is he wants to kill self-righteousness in us. When we do not ask for help, for input, for prayer, what we are doing is we are denying God's wisdom and we are denying what the church is intended to be and to do. The church is intended to walk through life, to shoulder the burdens that we carry, to provide perspective for us that you cannot see in and of yourself, that you and your spouse, your roommate, cannot see in and of yourself. Even there are times when you need to hear input from people that you might deem as not as smart as you. It's true. God will use the foolish and the weak. As overseers, uh, we regularly invite people to write prayer requests on the back of your communication cards because it's, it's a joy for us to be able to pray with you guys. And, and I'll be honest, I can't tell you how many times it's happened for myself that, that I'll hear about things that have gone on. Like there's been this big thing that's gone on in someone's life and and that's the first I, I hear of it. It's, it's on the tail end, like so much has happened already. And I think, man, I would have loved to have been praying with you and for you on that. And, and so part of my encouragement in this is, as Michael was stating earlier, share. Share the mess. Share the junk. Share the needs. Share your lack with others so that the church can be and do what it is intended to do. And in that, you can fight self-righteousness and self-sufficiency that, that is growing in your heart. It's going to grow. It's just natural to us living in our flesh. Self-righteousness will grow in our heart. And if we don't actively, proactively kill it, it's going to be there. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much.